Please turn to Romans chapter 10. And we will read together. I invite you to follow along beginning at verse 14. And we'll read through verse 21. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help, the help of the spirit as we think about it together. Uh, Lord Jesus, you've given us your word, and so now we do ask again that you would give your spirit, that by your spirit's presence, power, and working, our, our minds would be illumined, and, and our hearts would be inclined to receive, and our wills engaged uh, to act, to believe, to act upon what it is you have for us here. So uh, come and, and do for us what you did for those disciples on the road to Emmaus, Uh, Open our minds so that we can understand the scriptures. Help us, we pray, in your name. Amen. Please be seated. When we uh, started this this trek through Romans three and a half years ago, um, and and by the way, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones took 15 years to get through Romans, and he never finished it. He retired before he finished (laughs) So I don't know if it was Romans that wore him out or what the deal was, but, but, but we're doing a, uh, an abridgment by some standards, I guess. But when we started this, I remember saying something like this to those of you who were here. When you step into the world of the Bible, you're stepping into, into a different world. I mean, a, a world that has its own vocabulary, its own way of seeing, its own way of thinking. Uh, and, and, that, and there can frankly be a culture shock when you step uh, into the world of the Bible. It's a little bit like bring, bringing uh, Alfaio Mugeta, who is a Tanzanian pastor and whose picture is on our refrigerator, Alfaio and Josefina Mugeta. Uh, it's a little bit, it would be a little bit like bringing Alfaio to the city of New York and, and dropping him near Central Park on Fifth Avenue or something and and saying, have a good time, right? I mean, he needs a translator. He needs a guide. He needs somebody to to help him uh, navigate a a strange and 
and mystifying but certainly wonderful world. He, he would have questions and he would need answers. Uh, you know, it kind of falls to me to be the navigator here. Um, and that can be really challenging. And, and the first thing that I want to say to you as we continue to make our way uh, through the world of Romans, as we think about this passage in the context of Romans, as we think about Romans in the context of the other 65 books that make up the one book, which is the Bible, uh, my best counsel as we stand in the midst of this a sometimes confusing, perplexing, mysterious world of the Bible, my first bit of counsel is that you be inclined to worship. That you be inclined to worship. Because you're in the world, you're in a world of mystery and wonder. You are face to face in this world with inexhaustible and sometimes incomprehensible riches. And the thing to do is worship. The thing to do is bow before the God of wonder, whose thoughts are not your thoughts, whose ways are not your ways, whose thoughts and ways, in fact, are higher than your thoughts and ways. Which is exactly what the apostle does when he gets to the end of this section, doesn't he? When he gets to the end of this section, as he's plumbed, tried to plumb the depths of the mysterious outworkings of the purpose of God, how does he conclude that? How does he come to the end before moving on in chapter 12 to the application of all of the riches of grace that he's tried to unearth and unpack and put on display for the Romans? How does he end what is the first section of this letter? The end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. That's my first bit of advice and counsel to us, is that we incline our hearts and dispose our hearts in the direction of worship in the midst of these things. I mean, think of the things that we've been dealing with. We have to go back a bit to remember. But what we're dealing with Uh, as we come particularly to chapters 9 and 10 and 11, is this incredibly perplexing matter that Jews, this is sort of the ramp up to get us up to speed with, with where we are now, this incredibly perplexing matter that Jews who were blessed to have such a unique place among all of the nations of the world, the covenant people of God. Romans 9.4 calls them Israelites. They're descendants of the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Israel, the children of Israel, uh, accordingly have this great standing as the covenant people of God. And Paul describes them as being adopted and possessing the glory, which is to say they had the tabernacle and then later the temple in the midst of them where God's glory dwelled. It's incredibly privileged people. And they had the covenants and they had the law. Oh, gee, I wish... I wish we could take 20 minutes and just talk about the significance of the law, that the law, you heard it from Mark Futado when he was here. The word Torah is not just prescriptions and proscriptions, but it's the wisdom of God and the wisdom of God that is that is encased in a history of redemption so that the law becomes the gift of God to the people of God. It becomes his wisdom for the ordering of their lives. Right. They had that. 
And they had the worship and they had the promises. And then from their race, from their race, this people gives birth to the Christ, the promised Messiah, who is himself God over all. What staggering riches, what extraordinary blessings. And the perplexing thing is that this extraordinarily blessed people is now largely unresponsive. Unresponsive. And it's stunning. And what's even more stunning is that Gentiles are flocking in. The Jews are are unresponsive. The Gentiles are flocking in. They're coming from every point of the cultural compass, the ethnic compass, the literal compass. They're coming from north, south, east, and west. They're flocking in. And so what the main issue is for Paul is this this perplexing matter of the Jewish rejection and the Gentile exception of the person, acceptance of the person of Christ and the gospel of Christ. So, again, to get, us, to get us here, back here in chapter 10, uh, and to try to extract some stuff from this particular passage, let's do three things. Let's see where we've been, let's look at where we are, and then let's try to extract these lessons. First, where have we been? I've, I've suggested uh, some of it, but let's, let's remember do this briefly, but let's remember that in the first eight chapters, Paul is basically answering this question. And it's a question that can't be asked often enough. You can't assume anything with respect to this question. So as you hear me ask it, let me beg you, every one of us, that we wrestle with it. Paul's first eight chapters, beginning at verse 18 and and following, 16 and 17 of chapter 1, and then through the end of chapter 8, is all designed to answer this one question, how is a person right with God? How do you gain acceptance with God? How do you gain acceptance with God? Whether Jew or Gentile, how is reconciliation with God effected, accomplished? And Paul gives an answer through those first eight chapters. And his answer basically is this. Any person finds acceptance with God, not, listen to this, not on the basis of ethnicity. Not on the basis of ethnicity. Not on the basis of keeping lists of do's and don'ts, proscriptions, prescriptions, not on the basis of keeping laws, not on the basis of performing religious practices, in the case of the Jews, circumcision, in the case of many folks tragically misguided, thinking that their baptism got their ticket punched whether they were baptized as adults or infants. Paul argues strenuously from a variety of perspectives that I am accepted by God, reconciled to God, not on the basis of my works, 
not on the basis of my righteousness, not on the basis of what I do, but solely on the basis of what Christ has done, accepted as a gift, received through the instrumentality of faith. That's the only thing that gets me saved. It's the only thing that keeps me saved. It's the only thing at the end of the day that gets me outside of this maddeningly perplexing, broken life into a new heaven and a new earth. It is solely, singularly, entirely on the basis of what Christ has done in his life of obedience and what Christ has done as a substitute, dying, bearing my sin, being raised again to newness of life. That's the ground, folks. Please think about it. I know you think I'm, I'm this is, you know, we don't need to talk about this, right? No, 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 we do need to talk about this. Because in a crowd this size, the possibility does exist that even a person who's been hearing these things from me for the last three and a half years or five years, and you know how clear and understandable I am, a person can listen to these things for years. And miss it. It is never, ever preaching to the choir to remind us that we ask this question over and over and over again. What is the ground of my acceptance with the Father? And the answer to that question is solely Jesus Christ. That's what he does through the first eight chapters. And the thing that Paul says at the end of that eighth chapter, which I know is precious to all of us, precious to those who understand it. Once a person accepts Christ, embraces Christ, believes on Christ, that person is safe, secure, forgiven, reconciled, restored, an adopted child of his or her heavenly father, never ever to be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus again. Come hell or high water. And that's where that first section ends on this note of incredible exaltation, right? Like the high point in a symphony, the grand crescendo at the end of a symphony. But then from there in the beginning of chapter 9, Paul begins to wrestle with this critical question, the matter of widespread unbelief among the Jews. How can these, described in those first five verses, how can these be so pervasively characterized by unbelief. And Paul gives his answer in chapter 9, verses 6 through 26. And his answer is this. How is it, how is it that so few Jews seem to be responding? His answer to that question is to ask another question. He anticipates the question, given this widespread unbelief, Has the word of God failed? Has the promise failed, given this widespread unbelief? And his answer is no, absolutely not. The word of God has not failed. The promise of God has not failed. The true children of Israel are those who have believed in the promise, who have accepted Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Christ. 
There are the physical descendants of Abraham, but among the physical descendants of Abraham, according to God's sovereign work in election and in showing mercy, there is a true spiritual seed of Abraham. And those who have experienced this electing mercy and grace are a remnant within the wider nation whom God has sovereignly chosen and called out of that nation. Upon them he shows mercy, and in them are all of the promises fulfilled. If you just look ahead a couple of verses, the first verse of chapter 11, Paul is alluding to the same thing. Has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. What's the evidence that God hasn't rejected his people? He himself is the evidence. The Apostle Paul is one. And so, in these verses, 6 through 26 of chapter 9, we are more than knee-deep in the mysteries of the outworking of the purpose of God. God sovereignly in electing grace from out of Israel has secured a people who are the true seed of Abraham. And then here's the great mystery. These Gentiles now are being added from all of the nations and they themselves, by virtue of their believing in Jesus, become the true seed of Abraham. God adds Gentiles to this believing people. And the image that Paul uses again in chapter 11 is the image of an olive tree uh, with Abraham as the root. You can go ahead and read it. Read ahead. Abraham is the root of the olive tree. And God is grafting in Gentiles while he's lopping off unbelieving Jews from the olive tree, the the natural branches. He's grafting in people from Scotland and Ireland and Bolivia and the Philippines and the continent of Africa. He's grafting in these Gentiles. He's been doing it for 20 centuries. And these then are the ones in whom the promise made to Abraham is fulfilled, believing Israel together with Gentiles who are being added in. That's where we've been. And so where are we? We're in these verses beginning in verse 5 of chapter 10 and through the rest of the chapter. We're coming to this specific matter, the specific question of Israel's unbelief. So he's answered the one question. Has the purpose of God failed? Has the promise of God failed? No, it hasn't failed. It's fulfilled in believing Israel and in the Gentiles who are being added in. Now in these verses, he comes to the specific matter of unbelief in Israel. How do we account for this unbelief? And in verses 5 through 13, Paul begins to answer that question by citing Old Testament passages, beginning with Moses, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He presses this point home. He presses it that for the Jew living within the covenant community who has the law and all of the promises, Paul presses this home that for them it was all right there. 
That's what we saw the last time we were together in Romans. We looked at verses 5 and following. And what does Paul say? He says, he says, look, it's all right here. You don't have to go up into heaven to bring Christ down. Why? Because Christ has come down. How did he come down? We're going to see this again in a second. He certainly came down in his incarnation. But folks, he came down in the word of God revealed by God to the people of God on the other side of the cross, he came to them in the form of promise. It's all right there. You don't have to go up into heaven. It's come down to you. And you don't have to go down into the place of the dead and, and, and effect some sort of resurrection. In other words, you don't have to do these heroic things. God has come down to you. In fact, in Christ, and this was promised in the Old Testament, this was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, Christ goes down into the place of the dead and he comes up from the dead. That's it, folks. You don't have to do something heroic except the most heroic thing that anybody will ever do, which they do by the grace of God and only by the grace of God. The only thing you have to do is deny yourself. Abandoning. Abandoning every effort at self-righteousness and entrusting yourself, calling upon God and his provision in Christ, whether in the form of promise or in the form of fulfillment, calling upon this one true God. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, whether Jew or Gentile. There is no distinction. So having set us up then, Paul answers a couple of questions related to the unbelief of Israel. And he said in, the, in those verses, 5 through 13, he said for the Israelites, it was there, it was near. Didn't have to go up, didn't have to go down. Cry out, call out, confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. Well, then he answers the obvious question, a couple of obvious questions related to Israel's unbelief. And he does it by showing the progress of a, how a person actually comes to believe. And he does it in reverse order. Okay? He asks this question. How does a person get saved? How does a person get saved? Well, here's the answer for you. In chapter 10, verse 14. How can they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? Reverse the order. How is it that somebody gets saved? A preacher gets sent. A preacher preaches, presumably to hearers who hear, and when they hear, they believe, and believing, they call out, they cry out. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Paul asks this question, okay, if that's how it works, if that's how a person gets saved, gets reconciled, gets restored, becomes a Christian, a preacher is sent, a preacher preaches, the preacher preaches to those who hear, they hear, they believe, they call out, did Israel hear? Did Israel hear? Verse 18, I ask, 
Have they not heard? Indeed, they have. And then he cites Psalm 19. See, he's quoting the Old Testament scriptures to make his case to the Jews that they have no excuse for their unbelief. It's a hard word, folks. They have no excuse for their unbelief. If you're here this morning, you don't believe. If you've been here more than once, you've been here two, three, five, seven, five years. I want to suggest to you, you have no excuse for your unbelief. You have no more excuse for your unbelief than the Israelites had excuse for. They cannot plead, I never heard it. Paul is saying, yes, you did. And he quotes Psalm 19 as his proof text of the fact that they did hear. You did hear. And I think he has two things in mind when he makes this statement, when he cites Psalm 19. I think he's thinking both about the fact that they did hear, they did hear in the scriptures of the Old Testament of the promise of a coming Savior, a coming Messiah. They had it. They had it. But I think he's thinking also about the fact that in their day, in their time, in these days in which Paul is writing this letter, they had heard as well. Think about it. We're 25 to 30 years into the history of the church. What has Paul been doing for these last 25 to 30 years? First, he spent about 15 of them learning the gospel that he would preach. And for the last 15 to 20 of those years, he's been preaching that gospel. And where has he gone? He's gone to Asia Minor. He's gone to Macedonia. He's gone to Greece. And he's not the only one who's been doing this. The book of Acts is the only history of the church that's kept and recorded for us. But what we know from the traditions in the history of the church is that the others went to the other points of the compass. So that Paul can legitimately say in verse 18, as he quotes Psalm 19, their voice has gone out to the whole earth, their words to the ending of the world. What did Paul do in his missionary endeavors? He went to synagogues. He preached these things to Jews. Read the book of Acts. How did they respond? Largely, they rejected. They rejected. Have they heard? Absolutely, they have heard. What accounts for their unbelief? Their unbelief. What accounts for their unbelief? Their unbelief. Well, yes, but but did they understand? Okay, so they heard it, but did they understand it? Notice he doesn't answer that question in quite the same way he answers the question in verse 18. When the question is asked, did they hear? He says, indeed, they have heard. But when he asks this question, did Israel not understand? It may be rhetorical. The answer may be suggested by the question itself. Yes, they did understand in the sense that they had the scriptures and they could read the scriptures and they heard the scriptures explained in the synagogues. And what is it that they understood or certainly should have understood? They should have understood this citation from Isaiah to be, in fact, a warning. A warning. A warning. 
I was found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Who dat? Dat, the Gentiles. It's there in the Old Testament scriptures, folks. Okay, sidebar. This idea that there is this massive disjunction between the Testaments is an aberrant view of how the Bible works. Gordon MacDonald used to refer to the Old Testament as the Older Testament and the New Testament as the Newer Testament. I like that. It does a job of bringing them together. There's the cross, which is the hinge that holds them both together. But this idea that there is this radical disjunction or these radical disjunctions in the Scriptures... Look at what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying there's a unity of the Scriptures. He quotes the Old Testament to show that the Israelites had the message and they even had the message that they would reject. They would reject the Gospel when it came in its fullness and that Gospel would be extended to a people who didn't seek God And God would show himself to a people who didn't seek him. Who would that be? That would be Gentiles. It's all there. You see, it's one story. It's one unfolding, glorious, historical, redemptive story that culminates in Christ and continues to unfold and will find its final culmination, its glorious culmination in his return and our introduction into the new heaven and the new earth. We're doing hermeneutics here, folks. Hermeneutics. The science, the principles of biblical interpretation. Paul is saying they had it, they understood it at some level. And look at the last thing that he says, verse 23. How do you account for unbelief in Israel? This is here too in the Old Testament. Heartbreaking. Look, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't take pleasure in this. I'm not taking pleasure in it. He doesn't take pleasure in it. Remember what he says in chapter 9, the first verse, my heart's desire for them. I wish that they would be saved. My conscience bears witness. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then in in chapter 11, he says uh, that he wishes that they could be saved. I'm sorry, chapter 10, the first couple of verses. He didn't take pleasure in this, but the reality is, verse 21 of chapter 10, you explain Israel's unbelief by Israel being hard-hearted and stubborn. Stubborn and contrary. It was prophesied. It's there. It's heartbreaking. So how then, how then do you account for belief? said this when we were in chapter 9, but it bears repeating here. How do you account for belief, whether in a Jew or in a Gentile? If you are a Christian here this morning, how do you account for that fact? There's only one answer to that question, according to Romans 9 and 10, because unbelief is so resilient. It's so thorough. It's so deep. Its fortress walls are so high and so thick 
There is only one thing that can account for the fact that anybody is a believer at all. And that is that the sovereign, electing, merciful, compassionate God of heaven and earth exercises his sovereignty in electing and in having mercy upon the undeserving. That's the only way you can account for belief anywhere you find it. A sovereign, electing, merciful, and compassionate God who is all-powerful, sovereignly, chooses and extends mercy and compassion to the undeserving. And folks, I have to take us back just ever so briefly to chapter 9 because it rises up in my heart and I know it rises up in your hearts. It is this question, is God unfair in acting sovereignly, distinguishing one from another and choosing to exercise mercy and compassion with respect to the one while passing over the other? Is that fair? And the answer to the question is twofold. Don't ask for fair. Don't ask for fair. You don't want fair. Because fairness is justice, and the last thing in the world you want is justice. You need mercy. You must have mercy. It's your only hope. And the second answer is, be the creature. Be the creature. Don't impugn. Don't question the integrity of the sovereign God who has splayed the evidence of his mercy and compassion across all of human history in the cross of his son. We've got to be careful, folks, that we not say, God, you cannot be this way. God acts in sovereign, electing mercy, and that accounts for why you find belief anywhere. And so what are a couple of takeaways here? What are a couple of takeaways? Here's the first one. This relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, how they intersect, how they relate, is a deep and wonder-filled mystery. And that's why Paul, in part, why Paul ends up at the end of this section in worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has exhausted the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who is in a position to give advice to the God of heaven and earth? I don't understand how those two things intersect. And so, in hearing of them, the disposition of my heart must be to remember that I am the creature before the Creator and to move in the direction of adoration and worship, not criticism and judgment. 
That's risky business. That's takeaway number one. It's kind of where we started. And here's takeaway number two. We take human responsibility seriously. We take human responsibility seriously. Maybe I'll talk about this a little bit more next week. Some of you know the Latin phrase, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, right? The ordo salutis. It occurred to me this last week that there is an ordo salutis which can be described as pertaining to the divine perception of how a person becomes a Christian. But there's another ordo salutis that has to do with the human perspective as to how a person becomes a Christian. And at the human level, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, the way it is that a person becomes a Christian is that preachers are sent and preachers preach and they preach Christ and people hear of Christ and hearing of Christ by the grace of God, their hearts are opened and they believe and they call upon him in faith. That's why I'm going to Tanzania in two weeks. That's why I'm so thankful that this conference is going to happen again. Because 150 preachers are going to come from very isolated places and they're weary and they're tired and they need somebody to come and preach Christ to them so that they can go back to their villages and preach Christ in their villages. We take human responsibility seriously. Preachers are sent. Preachers preach. People hear. They believe. And they call upon him in order to be saved. That's the ordo salutis at the human level. Some of you know the story of David Livingston, and I'll close with this. David Livingston, a Scotsman, went to those good Scottish Presbyterians with a burden for Africa. And those misguided hyper-Calvinists said to David Livingston, my boy, patronizing, condescending, my boy, if God wants to save the Africans, he will do it without you. And David Livingston's response was to find another sending agency because he knew that God employs the primacy of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the gathering, the perfecting, the encouraging, the strengthening of those for whom Christ has died, whom the Father gave him from before the foundation of the world. And so David Livingston went. Why? Because he believed and affirmed the reality of human agency and human responsibility. I go to Africa in two weeks with Paul. With Paul, and I hope with you, I got to say, woe is me if I preach not the gospel because it is the gospel 
It is the gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile. And we affirm human responsibility. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Thank you for gathering us up, yoking us to yourself so that we might participate with you in this grand and glorious work of heralding the glad tidings of your own person and your glorious work. And thank you that across 20 centuries and now more into the 21st century, it has been your good pleasure to use fools and the foolishness of preaching for the gathering of those for whom you've died. What an extraordinary blessing and gift. Help us, help me, help us to be faithful in heralding these glad tidings to the praise of your glorious grace. In your name, Lord Jesus, do we pray. Amen.